Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you guys know how much I love you already, how much I love interacting with you in my videos, and I'm so happy that you came to hang out again, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm psyched for this episode tonight because this is another one like Frank Costello. I feel like I've already done an episode on this man before. I have talked about him so many times already on so many other videos, and I've gone through so much information on him but I honestly really don't know much about his life and what led up to him being such a powerful person and rising through the ranks in the Mafia. A huge plus for this episode is that there's a few rats that are circling around this case. That's a plus because when someone rats, it becomes very public knowledge information that we otherwise wouldn't know. So as much as I hate a mob rat, I also recognize their importance in our ability to learn about what went on with specific events and what went on in mafia history and in people's lives in general. Constantino Paul Castellano was born on June 25th, 1915 in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. His parents had immigrated to America from Sicily, of course. His father, Giuseppe Castellano, was a butcher, and he was mafia royalty as well. He was in the Mangano family, which we know turned into the Gambino family, so Paul just kind of walked right in in his father's footsteps and climbed into the Gambino family as well. His mother, Concetta Castellano, was a stay-at-home wife, like we see in a lot of these cases. And the pair had two children together, Paul and Catherine Castellano. Paul was never really into school. It just wasn't his thing. His father was a pretty heavy hitter in the mafia, and he's known from a young age that that's exactly what he wanted to do, to follow in his father's footsteps in the Gambino family. He really loved the flashy Cadillacs, he loved the power that the men exuded, and he loved the sense of camaraderie that came along with being a member in the mafia. He dropped out of school in 8th grade and joined his father's crew immediately. And he also followed in his footsteps in his career path as a butcher. So pretty much he is just trying to live the life that his father lived. At 19 years old, he and his friends arranged a robbery. They pulled a pistol on a clothing shop owner and took what was in the register. They each wound up walking away with 17 whopping dollars. The clothing store, I saw it referred to as a haberdasher, so it was a men's clothing store. Witnesses got his plates and they reported it to the cops, so he did get away from the store. He didn't get caught at the scene, but when he got home to Brooklyn, the cops were waiting for him there and they arrested him. They questioned him endlessly about who pulled off the robbery with him, and he claimed that he picked up two hitchhikers and he had no idea who those guys were. He didn't know their names, he didn't know where they lived, he knew absolutely nothing about them, and he was willing to take the responsibility by himself. The arrest happened in Hartford, Connecticut, 
and when he was arrested, he was sentenced to a year in prison. Even though he was sentenced to a year, he only ended up doing three months. And he really didn't skip a beat. When he got out of jail, he just went right back to business as usual. Meat cutting by day, robberies by night. Now, obviously, word spread about this young man that had such strong ties to the families, got jail time, and didn't open his mouth. That's a huge deal. Soon after he got out of prison, at 19 years old, he was officially initiated as a made member into the La Cosa Nostra. Paul also followed in his cousin's footsteps in many ways. He, like so many with similar backgrounds, married a distant cousin, Nina Mano, when he was 22 years old. Together, the pair had four children. I've talked about the Mono family a lot on this channel, actually. I think one day I have to do an episode that's like solely based on at least one of the Monos or the Mono family. But yeah, Gambino had blood ties to the Monos, which means that Paul had blood ties to them because Paul had blood ties to Gambino. But he still married Nina and they had three sons and one daughter together. They named their sons Paul Jr., Philip, and Joseph, and they named their daughter Constance, who they called Connie. He and his father worked together working on an expansive illegal lottery that they had been running for a really long time. Paul also owned a wholesale meat company. So he was making moves out here. Like he owned a little piece of a lot of things. And the wholesale meat company, that was like his main grind. Paul started to build a really close friendship with his cousin, another rising star in the family, Carlo Gambino. So now a lot of times in this episode, I'm going to refer to the family as the Gambino family. But remember, the family wasn't named the Gambino family until Joseph Falacci took the stand. So the Gambino family existed well before Carlo Gambino took over as the boss of the family. So remember when I was talking on my Nicolo Rizzuto episode about how it's completely normal for people from the Sicilian regions to kind of do the incest thing because they're so secluded from the rest of the world. We're going to start to see a little more of that here. Carlo Gambino, even though he was Paul's cousin, also married Paul's sister, Catherine. Even though that was like, you know, really nasty, it did serve to strengthen the bonds between the families. Now, not only is it his cousin, but it's also his brother-in-law. Plus, they're in organized crime together. The dad's a big wig. So they're like legit joined at the hip. They do everything together. Castellano actually gained a lot of respect from something that he really even had nothing to do with, his size. As I've said a few times on this channel, Italian men, for some reason, they tend to be short. Paul stood at almost six foot three. So he legit looked down on everybody. Like, he, these were peasants. And that made a lot of dudes really scared of him because he was, he was twice their size. Tie that with his rich family history in the mafia and his strict adherence to Omerta, and you've got a mafia boss in the making at 19 years old. So Castellano got into the family when Mangano was the boss and Anastasio was the underboss. His father had a trucking company, and the family would regularly use these trucks 
to run illegal alcohol during Prohibition, and probably well after that as well. For some reason, we see dudes getting arrested for bootlegging well after Prohibition was outlawed. And it looks like the Castellano family was really involved in all of those shenanigans. He also used this time to further his meat distribution company that was called Blue Ribbon Meats, and it made a ton of money. I'm talking a ton of money. He would regularly make large loans, and when the people were unable to pay, he would take a piece of the business. So instead of like your typical mafia guy going and, you know, breaking people's knees and stuff, he is just taking pieces of businesses. A lot of his customers were butchers. So having a piece of that business aligned pretty well with his meat distribution company, so it worked out pretty well for him. After the Castella Marisi War was fought and it was finished and the dust had settled, Maranzano and Masseria had both been killed. Gambino was promoted to be the captain at only 29 years old and given a whole ass crew to himself. Now, if this is kickball and he's choosing the people to have on his team, Paul Castellano is the first person he chooses to be on his crew. Carlo took him along with him on his rise to the top. Carlo made it obvious that he didn't trust anybody that wasn't family, which is probably how he fell upon marriage to his first cousin at 30 years old. When the families were officially put into place after the Castella Marisi War, there was a boss assigned to each of the five families that would make up the commission together. The bosses were Lucky Luciano, who led what came to be known as the Genovese family, Joseph Perfacci, who led what came to be known as the Colombo family, Gagliano, who led what came to be known as the Lucchese family. Now, originally, Salvatore Maranzano was put in place as the boss of his family, and they put Frank Scalise in place as the boss of another. The only problem is Salvatore Maranzano was killed pretty quickly after the Castellamarisi War. And when he was killed, Frank Scalise stepped down as the boss and became the consigliere of his family. He gave the title of boss to Vincent Mangano, who led what came to be known as the Gambino family. Joseph Bonanno stepped up to lead the Maranzano family, and I think we all know what family that came to be known as. It didn't take long for Castellano to skyrocket upwards in the family, and he was a capo directly reporting to Albert Anastasia in the blink of an eye. Like, this kid prospered, and he prospered fast. In the Mangano family, Vincent Mangano led the family as the boss from 1931 to 1951, at which time Albert Anastasia ordered his death. He just got tired of him. Mangano was like always bitching that Anastasia would do things without his permission, and he was always bitching about the fact that Anastasia was like dropping bodies left and right, and he just became a real headache for Anastasia. So Anastasia is like, you know what? You're done. In 1951, after Vincent Mangano disappeared in April of that year, Anastasia stepped up to become the boss of the family. He appointed Carlo Gambino as his underboss, who immediately promoted Castellano. Castellano was his right-hand man and pretty much just followed Carlo Gambino around like a puppy dog. In 1957, the infamous Appalachian meeting took place. 
I'll do a quick recap of the events leading up to the Appalachian meeting for anybody that doesn't watch all my videos. It's going to be quick, though, I promise. So if you watch all my videos, don't leave. It's going to be quick. In 1946, Lucky Luciano got deported out of America after assisting the United States in winning World War II. He was serving a 30 to 50 year prison sentence, so they did let him out of jail earlier, but they did not allow him to stick around. They immediately deported him to Italy after getting out of jail. Luciano and his underboss, Genovese, they had some beef going on, and that was due to Genovese being a rat little piece of shit. Genovese had been acting boss from 1936 until 1937 when he ended up fleeing America and running away from a murder charge. He ran to Italy to help Mussolini take over control of Italy because, you know, Mussolini needed help. Costello became the boss of the family in 1937, and he stayed there until 1957. Vito Genovese was extradited from Italy to face the murder charge in America on June 1st, 1945. The Kefauver trials took place in March of 1951. Two people rose to fame from those trials, Virginia Hill and Frank Costello. Though those trials did end up making Costello a household name, it did end with him going to jail for a really long time for refusing to give the government any information. While Costello was in jail, Genovese made several power moves, including taking out Costello's underboss and cousin, Willie Moretti, in an attack that Genovese claimed was a mercy killing. This was a pretty wild situation, so if you're interested in the whole intricacies of what went down and what I just said, go check out my Frank Costello video because I go way deeper into this in that video. I'm not going to go into it here because I've already done it, but if you're interested, that was a wild ride. So that Frank Costello video is actually really interesting. When Costello got out of jail in 1956... Vito Genovese worked together with Carlo Gambino to take out the bosses of each of their families so that they could step up and take on the position of boss themselves. Genovese had a protege, Vincent the Chin Gigante, kill Frank Costello on May 2nd, 1957. Gigante was a very bad shot, and he ended up just clipping him in the head, and his hat caught more of that bullet than his head did and Costello ended up living. Costello didn't find the battle worth it. He didn't want boss that badly, so he stepped down and gave the position of boss of his family to Genovese. Genovese worked with Gambino to take down the boss of his family, Albert Anastasia. Anastasia was killed on October 25th, 1957, while getting a haircut and a shave at the Park Central Hotel. After Anastasia died, Genovese called the Appalachian meeting to order so that they could officially name Carlo Gambino as the boss of the family. A lot of people told him it was a bad idea because there was a current big mafia meeting going on in Italy. And the area that they planned to have this meeting go down had a history of not having control of the cops. Genovese didn't listen, and every powerful mafia figure was called to gather in Joe the Barber Barbera's house in Appalachian, New York, on November 14th, 1957. The meeting was raided. If you read up on it, it'll tell you that it was raided because, you know, cops noticed a lot of really nice cars coming into town, yada yada. It's not true. That's not what happened. They 
had a wiretap and they knew the meeting was coming weeks before it happened. So they just ended up arresting everybody. The Appalachia meeting was significant for Paul Castellano because he was in attendance. He was one of the youngest people at the entire meeting. He was only 42 years old, and this meeting was for seriously heavy hitters. So, like, if you got arrested because you were at the Appalachian meeting, you were a bigwig in the mafia. He was looked at like a kid, but the guest of honor to the meeting was Gambino and Castellano's Gambino's boy. So, you know, he's got to show up and, like, you know, rep them colors. When he was arrested at the meeting, police tried him and required him to give up information on the reason for the meeting and the people that were in attendance. Just pretty much like, you have to give us information. There's, It's not a question. Give it to us. They had only caught about half the dudes that they knew were in attendance. A lot of them were able to get away and they needed more information. This is something I've talked about multiple times in my videos, but if you haven't seen my old videos, I will reiterate I have no idea how this happens. I really don't. It's against the Constitution. It's against the law. It's against everything that's supposed to make America, America. But it still happened. Castellano did what many Mafia members that had been tried at the Appalachian meeting or the Kefafa meetings had done. He pled the fifth. He did not cooperate and refused to give up absolutely any information, and he was found guilty of being in contempt of court and for conspiracy, and was given a five-year, five-year prison sentence. It's always been wild to me that these guys get locked up for pleading the fifth. Like, until I started researching the mafia and its history, I was always under the impression that you could just plead the fifth and shut your mouth, and that they couldn't require you to testify if you did that. But you would be surprised at how many people got thrown in jail for really long periods of time just because they refused to testify against themselves at the Kefauver trials or at the Appalachian meeting trials. After seven months in prison, Castellano won his appeal and he was released from prison. He got even more respect from this whole situation because yet again, he proved that under pressure, he was going to keep his mouth shut and he wouldn't speak to authorities, and he wouldn't flip. At this time, his meat distribution company had grown into a gigantic corporation that he called Dial Meat Purveyors Incorporated. Now, Dial Meat is involved in the poultry business. He sent his soldiers and his union leaders to the streets. Every market that sold poultry was forced to sell his poultry. If they didn't, if like they had a better hookup, if they had their own poultry business, they would just be harassed day and night by the Gambinos. They would be thrown beatings. The union leaders would send union guys there to like talk shit. It became way too big of a headache and eventually everybody caved and he was the only one in town. In 1976, Carlo Gambino got sick, and Castellano took the position of acting boss of the family. Everybody expected that when Gambino died, Aniello Della Croce, Gambino's underboss, would step into the role and become the new boss of the family. Carlo Gambino died watching a Yankees game on October 15th, 1976, after a 20-year reign as the boss of the Gambino family, and did not spend one day in prison. He left 
adamant instructions as to who would step into his position once he died. His cousin, Paul Castellano. The family was pretty split on this decision, and I think that if you watch The Sopranos, I'm, I, I was just re-watching it. Like, I'm re-watching it right now. I'm in, like, what the last season or the second to last season. And as I'm watching it, it clicked, even though I've watched The Sopranos, like, five times, it clicked that the war that went on between Carmine Jr. and Johnny Stacks, that is this war. There's half the family, half the Gambino family, wants Aniello Della Croce to become the boss, and half the family is on board with Paul Castellano taking over. Some of the family backed Castellano, the business-savvy best friend of the boss, who was probably one of the highest earners in the family, but he had absolutely no history of ever having killed anybody, and he really had no history of, like, making his bones at all the way that they all had. Some of the family backed Aniello Della Croce, or Neil Della Croce, a gangster like them who regularly pulled off robberies and came up through the streets the same way they did, and killed people and did crimes with them, but he didn't really have the potential to earn the amount of money that Castellano had. Della Croce was super into mafia history, into the rules, the regimes, etc. Like, everything. Della Croce was super, super into it. So when he was told that Gambino had named Castellano as his heir apparent when he died, he was upset, but he went along with it because that's just how things are done in the mafia. Castellano, seeing the factions being split in the family knew that he did need Della Croce and his followers behind him because there's a lot of things you can say about Castellano, but that he's stupid is not one of them. So he knew he needed Della Croce and Della Croce's support. He asked Della Croce to remain in the position of underboss that he was currently in. Della Croce accepted, so Paul Castellano took the position as boss of the family, and Della Croce just continued being the underboss as he had been under Carlo Gambino. I really never knew why Gambino didn't make Paul Castellano his underboss. That really never made sense to me. But he didn't. He had Aniello Della Croce. Probably because Della Croce was like a beast. Like, Della Croce, every time you hear somebody talk about him, they are just in love with him. Like, all the street soldiers, they loved this man. So it kind of makes sense. During his time as boss of the family, Castellano had came to be known as the Howard Hughes of the mob. He also came to be known as Big Pauly. Men in the family even would call him PC. To be 100% honest, Castellano was the absolute worst choice that you could choose to be made boss of the family. Like Gambino 100% made a mistake here. Castellano was not a gangster. He was a businessman through and through. He always had been. Yeah, he'd pull the occasional heist. He would do a robbery here and there. But honestly, after his three months in prison at 19 years old, that really kind of opened his eyes and made him flip over to the other side. He preferred boardrooms to the typical mafia bar club strip joint that they usually made their headquarters. Like you hear about all these places that are headquarters, they're always either restaurants or 
bars. Like, it's not a boardroom. It's not a business. The problem was he just wanted to do boardroom stuff. He just wanted to do white collar stuff, the professional stuff, like this, the money stuff. He didn't ever want to get his hands dirty. That's fine for a top earning member of the family. Like there's plenty of guys like that in the mafia. But when you're boss of the family, you kind of got to lead by example. The Gambino family was, is, always has been, and always will be the most powerful family that there is. It just is the way it is. You know what the Gambino family is full of? Gangsters. They wanted to see somebody like them in the position of boss of the family. Gambino was the best. He loved the professional side, but he would get down and dirty. He would kill somebody and he did not feel bad about it. He was business savvy, but he also fully participated in the crazy murders that happened in the Castella Marisi war. Everybody knew that he was not afraid to kill people. Castellano did not have that same reputation. The rest of the guys in the family, they're out here like, you know, OGs, like they're killers, they're hijackers, they're bank robbers, store robbers, they're doing the dirty shit. Paul continued the work that he and Gambino had started. He carried on in his rise to the top of the business world with what he called white rackets. White obviously referring to the white collar crimes. His real dream was to turn the mafia into a business. It already had the structure of a corporation, as he viewed it. It's a CEO, not a boss. It's a VP, not an underboss. It's a COO, not a consigliere. Like, you get where I'm going with this. He worked really hard to improve the relationship between his family and the other four families in the commission. He wanted to work together with those families and help to build a massive crime empire. Under Castellano, the Gambino family controlled every single drop of concrete that was poured in New York City. He took over the entire thing. By the early 80s, Castellano had a net worth of over $20 million. I know the 80s doesn't seem like that far back, but if it was today's money, he would be worth over $50 million. That number does not include whatever cash he had hoarded away at his house, whatever money he had in Swiss bank accounts, and I'm sure there was like a shit ton of cars and boats that he never reported as his own. So in reality, his net worth was probably somewhere around $50 million back then. In 1981, Paul Castellano spent over $3.5 million to build this insane mansion on Staten Island. It had 17 rooms, and it became known as the White House. The home had an Olympic-sized pool with a beautiful hot tub feet away from the pool, the most beautiful and peaceful garden you could ever imagine, a sunbathing area, a children's swing set. Like, this place was a freaking oasis. Inside, it was marble throughout, just absolutely beautiful. Out front, there was beautiful statues next to the front door. There was a gigantic water fountain in the driveway that looks like it could fit about 80 cars in this driveway. It's insane. The roof of this house looks like about five helicopters could land safely on it. Like, it's that big. 
It was all built at 177 Benedict Road in Staten Island, New York. His underboss, Thomas Belodi, lived right down the road, so that's pretty convenient. It's right in the middle of Todd Hill, the same place that Frank Cali lived, and Frank DeChico lived less than a mile away. So they had this little area that, like, all the mafia guys lived in. They didn't really have to go far to have meetings with each other. This entire area is absolutely insane. If you look at the aerial view, the house next door has a hot tub in the shape of Mickey Mouse, which is just the coolest thing in the world, because that would definitely be my house. I would definitely build a house with a jacuzzi in the shape of Mickey Mouse. Awesome. Castellano also continued with his cousin's philosophy. No drug dealing at all in his family. This was super important because a lot of times a drug arrest would make people flip. It turned them into government witnesses because drug arrests can lead to life imprisonments. So they wanted to avoid anybody given a life sentence because if you're given a life sentence, it's a very strong incentive to flip and rat out other people. So they want to avoid those life sentences being handed out. So they pretty much say absolutely no drug dealing under any circumstances and let's just cut out the chance of that happening. Building such a huge, expensive house had its costs. We know that, yeah, like, being in the mafia has its perks. You have the money, you have the power, you have the status, you have the respect. There's a lot of career opportunities that you may never have been given if you weren't in the mafia. Like, you know, mafia guys are given construction jobs from their friends, union openings, you know, etc. But we all know that there's a pretty significant cost as well. Now, obviously, there's the cost of, like... If your kid is dying in a hospital bed and your mafia boss calls you, you need to be with the mafia boss. They matter more than your family. But the monetary cost is typically 10% of your income gets kicked up and that's the price of being in a mafia family. That is typically the cost until it wasn't anymore for anybody in the Gambino family. Castellano decided one day after the costs of his house and everything else just started to pile up that the new cost of being in the Gambino family would be 15% to any person in the family. One of Castellano's biggest advantages that he had was a little pit bull that he kept in his pocket, mafia serial killer Roy DeMeo. DeMeo was fiercely loyal to Castellano. There is multiple instances that people were ordered to kill DeMeo, but they passed because they were too scared. I did an entire episode on DeMeo, and I really strongly suggest going to check it out because that is one of the most insane videos I've ever done. I fully believe that DeMeo is probably the most interesting mafia guy I've ever covered, so if you haven't seen that video, go check it out. But yeah, Roy DeMeo and his entire crew at the Gemini Lounge were just absolutely batshit crazy. They were killing people at a rate that, like, they were killing, like, a person a day. They would cut up the body and dispose of the pieces at random in random junkyards in the city, which came to be known as the DeMeo Method or the Gemini Method, named after the headquarters at the Gemini Lounge. And a pretty significant portion of these people that they were killing were hits that were ordered by Castellano himself. There were a lot of hits that Castellano would order DeMeo to carry out. Whenever he had a slight problem with anybody, he would just sick DeMeo on them and they were gone in like one day. Blink and I, they're gone. One of the hits that he ordered DeMeo to carry out was his daughter Connie's husband, 
Frank Amato. Connie had a miscarriage, and Castellano blamed it on the abuse that she was suffering at her husband's hands, so he gave DeMeo the order to kill him. So now, there's three huge situations that spell demise for this whole leadership structured. And I'm going to go through each one piece by piece. If you watch all my videos, you actually know a lot of the information I'm going to go through here. But, you know, like, you like my presence, you like chilling with me, we're having a good time, so just chill. It, you know, you hear it again, it's not that big of a deal. We still get to hang out. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to go through, and you will know it if you watched the Royal DeMeo episode, but it's a huge factor in today's episode, so we're going to re-go through it. So, obviously right now, we're over at the Gemini Lounge with the DeMeo boys. DeMeo's top gangster, his right-hand man, the man he looks at as a son is named Chris. Chris would go by different names because in reality, Chris is Jewish, not Italian, like he liked to let on. So a lot of the time, Chris would introduce himself as Chris DeMeo, given the really close father-son relationship that he shared with Roy DeMeo. So he would just introduce himself as DeMeo's actual son. One day, Chris sets up a meeting with a loan shark named Charles Padnick. Padnick, at the time, wasn't paying back loans that he had out with DeMeo. He's having a really hard time paying it back. So he goes to DeMeo and he's like, hey man, like, I'm having a really hard time paying you back. Is there anything that you can do to help me? Like, is there any way that you have that I can make money so that I can pay you? When he's asking for help, he lets it slip that he has a pretty close connection with some Cubans that have some pretty close ties to the Colombian and Cuban drug cartels. As soon as DeMeo hears the word cartel, his eyes get big dollar signs in them. DeMeo goes to Padnick and he's like, all right, listen, I will help you make a shit ton of money so you can get these loans paid back. Set up a meet with my boy Chris and your dude and let's connect Chris with the cartels and any business that we do with them will pay you a finder's fee and that's how you can make the money back to pay me. So Padnick sets up a meeting in Florida between Chris and the cartel dude. Chris introduces himself to William Serrano, who is the cartel connect, and he introduces himself as Chris DeMeo. Serrano is not in the cartel. He is like the middleman, but he doesn't tell Chris that. He sets up a deal with the Colombians, but... Again, Serrano does not say word number one to Chris that he's a middleman. He's not actually in the cartel. So he just tells Chris that he can get drugs and he can get the business done for him. So Serrano goes back that night and he calls the cartel and he tells them like, yeah, I just had a meeting with this dude, Chris DeMeo, and he's saying that he can unload a lot of drugs for you. And, you know, his stomping grounds are in New York. So if you want it, that is there. He has gotten in with the Gambino family. His father is Roy DeMeo. So I think we could do a lot of business together. So if you're interested, this offer is here. So there's this leader of the Colombian cartel that's only known as El Negro. I'm pretty sure that El Negro is Jorge Pabon, a partner of Pablo Escobar, but I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that's who that is. So Pabon is like, I bet, let's set up a trial run and we will give them a kilo of coke and we'll see how that goes. Gives them a kilo, deal goes off without a hitch, he has the money like by the end of the day and everything's great. He's like, all right, cool, this seems legit, like let's set up a large scale relationship. So again, they set this deal up. DeMeo does not know that Serrano is not the cartel connect. 
DeMeo thinks that the drugs are coming from Serrano. DeMeo thinks that Serrano is in the cartel and he's not answering to anybody. He's not telling anybody any moves that he's made. And he sets up a deal so that he's going to supply 12 kilos of coke to Chris DeMeo, who is going to distribute it in New York and give him $500,000 for the 12 kilos. As much as Pabon likes Serrano, he doesn't all the way trust him. So he sends out his bodyguard, who is also his cousin and like his right-hand man, and he also sends out his baby mama to go with Serrano to get this deal done, because baby mama has never seen New York, and she's like, oh, I want to be a part of it, and you know, she's a boss-ass bitch too, so she is down for this. So Serrano, the baby mama, and the bodyguard slash cousin slash right-hand man, they all head out to Serrano. And then Serrano and the three all head out to New York to head for DeMeo. Within minutes of these four touching ground in New York, they are all shot and killed, and their body parts make their way to the Fountain Avenue dump, Gemini style. The Gemini crew did not want to pay the $500,000 for the drugs. They just wanted the drugs, so they killed all four members that came with the drugs so that they could keep the drugs and keep the money. Now, Pavone doesn't hear from his cousin or his baby mama. He starts freaking out, obviously. He calls Padnik's wife, and he's like, what the hell is going on? I need to know what's going on. Padnik's wife is like, I don't know. I haven't heard from him. And Pavone is like, okay, well, let me talk to your son. And she's like, uh, no, my son is taking a nap right now. So she doesn't give the message to her son, and she's just like, I, I don't know. I haven't heard from him. I'll let you know if I hear from him. Now, again, Chris has absolutely no idea that there is a figure behind Serrano. He has no idea that Serrano is going back at the end of the day and telling people who he's meeting up with and any particularities. He thinks that this is just, you know, a powerful person in the cartel that he's dealing with. But in reality, Serrano had reported every single word of these meetings, and the fact that he was meeting with Chris DeMeo so he reports all that to Pabon and Pablo Escobar. So they're fully aware that this deal is going down. They're fully aware of everything. Now, this is not the only contact that the Gambino family has with the cartels. They work together pretty often. Now, I told you that Pabon had called Padnik's son... And, you know, the mom was like, uh, no, he's napping. He can't talk right now. He did finally get in touch with the son. The son went to check it out, and he was also killed and chopped up and thrown into the Fountain Avenue dump. So we've got a whole lot of dead bodies here in this one little situation, all tied up and mixed in with the cartel. So now because Chris introduced himself as Chris DeMeo, Escobar knows exactly where all these people's bodies are being disposed of. He knows exactly where they disappeared to, and he knows exactly who to go to to find out what the hell happened. When time goes by, he figures like, okay, all four of these guys are dead. He goes to Castellano, and he's like, I want this handled, or there will be a full-scale war. I'm talking full-blown war. Colombian drug cartel versus American mafia. Let's see who's going to win, and how much blood we can spill on American soil in the meantime. So the cartel eventually finds out that dude's name is not actually Chris DeMeo, that it's actually Chris Rosenbaum. He's not actually related to DeMeo. He's not actually a member of the family. And El Negro is actually really freaking chill about the whole situation. He pretty much is like, listen, I just want Chris dead. That's it. 
I'm not going to accept your word for it. I want it done in a manner that it makes the newspapers because I'm not going to believe you when you say it happened. I want him dead. I want it in the newspapers. And if you don't do that, it's going to be a problem. Which, like, super fair. You just lost your cousin and right hand. You just lost your baby mama. Like, the fact that he's settling for just Chris dying and not the entire crew is, like, super chill. Like, he is a boss for that. It's definitely because they have a lot of other dealings and they don't want to screw everything up with the mafia, but, like, I I would go for blood. I'd be like, I want that whole crew dead, you know? Like, so the fact that he just wants one person's head, like, I, I'm okay with it. The only problem is that Chris is like a son to DeMeo. They do all their scheming together. That is just, it's his person. It's the person he cries to, you know, the person that understands him. So DeMeo does not want to kill Chris and he doesn't want Chris to die. He accepts that it has to happen because he knows what a full-scale war with the cartel would look like and he acknowledges to Castellano that he knows but he just kind of puts it off on the back burner so he keeps just being like okay yeah I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it but there's no like sign that he's actually gonna do it so time goes by and DeMeo still hasn't killed Chris and things are getting more and more hot on the street for DeMeo. DeMeo starts getting super paranoid because the Colombians start sending people to remind him that Chris has to die. It's been weeks. They're getting fed up. They want this kid dead. One day, Roy is sitting in his house, and lately he had kind of become a recluse. He's not going out because every time he goes out, he's getting threatened by these Cuban cartel people. So he looks out the window, and he sees a dude sitting in a car. Dude sitting in the car outside his house is brown, so they must have found him and come to his house. So now Roy is like, yeah, screw this. This cartel really went and sent people to my house where my kids sleep they're dead. So he goes outside strapped and he tries to grab this kid out of the car. Dude in the car sees him and he nopes the fuck out of there because he's like, absolutely not. This dude's walking up at him with a gun in his hand. Like, no, he's out. But at this point, Roy is pissed and he's just having none of it. So he gets in his car and he starts following this brown guy. The chase goes on for seven miles on Route 110 in Amityville and Farmingdale in Long Island until Roy runs this kid off the block and damages his car to the point that the car's not running anymore and the kid can't drive. At that time, he sprays the hell out of this car and kills the kid in the car. So he drives off feeling super proud of himself and vindicated. Like, yeah, it's a really public killing and that's not great, but who can say a word to him about it? The cartel sent somebody to his house where his kids sleep. Like, nobody can say a word about that. Turns out the kid that was sitting outside his house had just left his neighbor's house. He was 19-year-old Dominic Ragucci, who was paying his way through school by selling vacuums door to door. He started running when he saw Roy approaching his car because Roy was coming at him with a big-ass gun in his hand. But he had absolutely no connection with any gang, any cartel, any mafia. He was just a college kid that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So now that was the very end of the line. The message gets sent to DeMeo. This is the end. This is ridiculous. You just killed a child mad publicly and he was innocent. 
We're not going to start stacking innocent bodies. We're not going to be in the news like this. Chris has to die, period. Go do it. Even after all of the people that Roy DeMeo has killed, DeMeo's son, Albert, wrote a book. And in the book, he said that when his father found out that Raguchi was just some innocent college student, that he cried. On May 11th, 1979, Chris came to the clubhouse. He had no reason not to go. Like, that's, you know, it's his clubhouse. He hangs out there every day. So why wouldn't he go? Everybody had been keeping this situation far away from Chris. Chris didn't know that the cartel was after him or anything. He just was going to chill for the night. Roy pulled out a gun and shot him, but he didn't die. He stumbled onto one knee and was like, what the fuck, dude? (laughs) Like... Roy just kind of stood there dumbfounded, but Anthony Center, another person in the Gemini crew, came up and shot him four more times, killing him. But now they have to make this make the newspapers. They put him in a car and put it on a street near a park and drove by and just lit this car up. That was enough of a spectacle to make the newspapers, so now it's in the newspapers crisis averted, no gang war, Chris is dead. Roy would bring Chris up at family events for the rest of his life about how it felt like the family event was empty and incomplete because Chris wasn't there. But at the end of the day, there's no war, you know, everything's going to be okay now. By this time, even though that whole huge spectacle had just happened, Castellano is behind Roy 100%. Like, he loves this boy This is his little pit bull. This is his protector. And you can't say a bad word about Roy. When James Eppolito Jr. and Sr., two made men in the Gambino family, went to Castellano and told him that DeMeo and Nino, the boss of the crew, were dealing drugs, which is a death penalty, Castellano didn't really have to think much about it. Nino is pretty much Castellano's right-hand man, and DeMeo had started to stack bodies over three digits in service of Castellano. James Eppolito Sr. and Jr. are obviously father and son. Father Eppolito, so Eppolito Sr., has a brother, Louis Eppolito, who is both an NYPD detective and a made man in the Gambino family. Lewis's father, Ralph, James Sr.'s brother, is also a maid member. So this is a really hairy situation for the family and for Castellano. On one side, he's got a dude that does all his killing for him, is his main protector, and is the main point of contact for the Westies who are bringing in union jobs and killing people that they need to get rid of that can't be connected with them. He runs the biggest stolen car ring in New York City. He brings tens of thousands of dollars a week to him. And Nino is one of his closest allies. On the other hand, you have an entire family within the family of made men who are pretty valuable themselves. One's a former detective, so he has all kinds of connections at the police department, and they earn pretty big money themselves. Not as much as Roy DeMeo and his crew earn, but they hold their own. And there is a lot of them. This could lead to a civil war in the family. So this is a shitty situation. At the end of the day, Castellano ended up siding with Nino and Roy DeMeo. He told Nino to do as he wished with the situation. He didn't want to hear about it. 
But if you wanted to take the whole crew out, you know, do what you got to do, bro. Nino and Roy went together to kill James Jr. and Sr. on October 1st, 1979. They had them in the car and the father kind of got spooked. He didn't like the situation. Like he had a feeling and he was just like, listen, you need to pull the car over right now. His son, James Jr. was driving the car and he told his son, like, listen, I got to pee. You got to pull the car over. James Jr. was like bitching. He's like, no, just wait till we get there, dad. We'll be there in a minute. Just uh, we're heading to the Gemini Lounge. It's all good. Just wait. Father was like, no, listen to your father. Pull the F over right now. So what ended up happening is they ended up having to kill them because the father knew, you know, there was no way that father was walking into the Gemini Lounge to do it in private. So they ended up having to kill them in public on the side of the road and somebody witnessed it and told the cops about it. Nino ended up getting caught after a police chase and a firefight with the arresting officers and DeMeo did everything he could to make it seem like the gun that he got caught with wasn't the gun used in the murder or that was firing back at police. The whole plan that DeMeo had devised was for Nino to say that he was also shot by the dude that killed the Epolitos. And him having a firefight with the cop, who didn't identify himself as a cop, was just like a wrong place, wrong time situation. Obviously, it's never going to work, but you know, they're going to give it their best try. Nino ended up having a friend who had a daughter on the jury. So he did end up getting off on that charge. But after this event, the FBI put a tail on DeMeo. Between Chris getting killed in that very public way that had to make the newspapers, the disaster with the cartel that DeMeo and his crew had stirred up, Nino being wrapped up in this murder and then found not guilty, but the FBI being put on him, it's pretty clear that DeMeo and his crew are going to get arrested. And he was going to go down, and it was going to happen soon. Castellano was convinced that if DeMeo is arrested, he would be given a life sentence and there's no two ways about it. He's going to rat him out. So he decides DeMeo has to go. He cannot risk DeMeo getting arrested and flipping because DeMeo has knowledge and has carried out all of these hits on behalf of Castellano. Under the RICO law, any person that commits a crime under a boss, the boss can get charged for that crime. So on top of that, if DeMeo flips, DeMeo will tell about these hundreds of murders that he's carried out in service of Castellano. So Castellano decides that DeMeo has to go. He gave the job to one of his most fierce and feared thugs because DeMeo is honestly who he would order to do this. He has no idea. What are you going to do? Who do you call to kill the person that you call to kill everybody? Castellano starts putting out feelers and offers the job to kill DeMeo to, like, everybody in the family. He is repeatedly turned down. Nobody wants this job. Everybody knows about DeMeo and the crew of killers that he has around him. They know how dangerous it is to try to do this. So, as I said, Castellano ends up giving the order to his fiercest and most feared thug, John Gotti. Gotti gets the order from Castellano himself, offering him the job to take out DeMeo, 
And he's like, all right, cool. I'll go back with my crew. I'll talk it over. I'll let you know. The Gotti crew ultimately made the decision to turn the offer down and not go after DeMeo. They were like, fuck that. We don't want that smoke. We know about that crew. We know about the amount of killings that they've done and we just don't want it. No, no, thank you. So now Castellano is like, fuck, like this isn't good, man. Gotti is my top dude, my most scary and most effective killer outside of DeMeo and he doesn't want to kill this man? Like what the hell am I going to do? He gives the job to Frank DeChico. DeChico just absolutely could not get to DeMeo. He was virtually in hiding. He knows that the FBI is after him. He knows that there's all kinds of eyes on him and how much danger he's really in. So he's pretty much in hiding. He's not leaving his house. He's not leaving his club. But DeChico, he ain't no punk. So he's like, all right, enough is enough. This is ridiculous. This man needs to die. Everybody's dancing around this, trying to make this happen. The boss said it needs to happen. Make it happen. So Dichiko ends up going to Nino Gaji. Nino Gaji is the leader of his group. So Gaji sends DeMeo in order to come see him. Now, even though DeMeo is pretty much a recluse in his house at this time, he's virtually in hiding. He knows that being summoned by Gaji probably means certain death, but he knows that, like, this man will burn his house down with him and his family in it if he doesn't go. Like, there's no choice. He has to go. He left behind his watch, his wallet, and his ring, stuff that he never left the house without. So it's pretty clear that he knew what was coming when he was leaving the house that day. On January 10th, 1983, he headed out of his house and never returned. Ten days later, his body was found in the trunk of his car, and Roy DeMeo was officially dead. I said that there was three situations, so that was the first situation that led to the demise. This is the second. One of Castellano's top-earning crews was the crew that mainly hung out at the Ravenite Social Club in Little Italy. Honestly, this location is just pretty much the headquarters of the entire Gambino family. Carlo Gambino had originally purchased the location, and he gave it to Aniello Della Croce to handle the trigger men under him, from this location. At the Ravenite, Della Croce had chosen a new protege, an up-and-coming hood named John Gotti. Gotti and his crew were very well known to be drug dealers, but everybody just kind of looked the other way because he was bringing in a shit ton of money, and they're funneling a lot of it up to the top. Gotti's top man, Angelo Ruggiero, was one of the biggest heroin runners in New York. So when Castellano put out a solid rule, like absolutely no drug dealing under any circumstance, if I hear even a whiff that you're drug dealing, I will take you the F out. I promise. That had a pretty big impact on the Gotti crew. Pair that with the uptick in percentage of Castellano asking. He's, he goes from the standard 10% that everybody else on the mafia pays up to 15%, and you're squeezing these guys of money that they don't have because they're not able to produce 
money that they weren't able to get from drug dealing, and it just became a really bad and toxic environment over there. One day, Angelo Ruggiero's brother, Salvatore, was flying an airplane with a whole shit ton of heroin in it. He and his wife, Stephanie, were flying one of those, like, you know, two-passenger, scary-ass little airplanes when it went down in Tybee Beach, Georgia. And that was, like, a half hour away from where I was stationed for the last three years. So when I did my John Gotti episode and I told this story, I was super excited about that fact. And I'm still, I still like it because it's, like, you know, so close. When the feds recovered a whole shit ton of heroin from the down plane, they knew that this guy had to be a pretty big time drug dealer. When they made the discovery, they looked up Salvatore and who Salvatore was associated with. And Salvatore is pretty publicly BFFs with his brother, Angelo Ruggiero, who is a known member of the Gambino family. This was all the FBI needed to get a warrant and place a wiretap in Angelo Ruggiero's house in Cedarhurst, Long Island. Angelo was very well known for his penchant for gossip, and the wiretap yielded unbelievable results. Not long after the wiretap was placed, Gene Gotti and Angelo Ruggiero were arrested for dealing heroin. Now, obviously, Castellano is pissed that Angelo is arrested for drugs, even though he had put out that solid rule that there's no drugs, and there was no exceptions, no circumstances which it would be okay, dealing drugs is an absolute death sentence. So now, when he's arrested, Angelo is given access to the tapes that were accumulated while the wiretap was in place. Castellano called Angelo and he's like, hey, dude, like, I told you not to drug deal. And Angelo is like, no, 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 man. Listen, listen, listen. These guys made it up. I am not a drug dealer. They're liars. I haven't dealt de drugs in years. I swear to you, none of it's true. I pinky promise. Castellano is like, I bet. Cool, 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 cool. I'll believe you. Run me them tapes, though. I want to see the tapes. And Angelo is like, uh, well, you know, like, I, I don't have them on me right now, but I'll get them to you. Like, soon, soon. I promise, soon. Castellano is like, all right, cool. You better get them to me, and you better get them to me soon. So now time's going by, and Castellano goes back, and he's like, okay, so where are the freaking tapes? Now, Angelo, at this point, is just straight out like, no, I'm not giving them to you. Screw you. And he's refusing Castellano's order. Obviously, Ruggiero does not want to provide these tapes because it proves that he's a drug dealer. Castellano goes to Gotti and he's like, hey, Ruggiero is your man. If you don't get me those tapes, I'm taking your rank and I'm breaking up your crew. The following year, Paul Castellano was arrested and the Mafia Commission trials started. The Mafia Commission trials were initiated after the wiretaps at Ruggiero's house heard Ruggiero talking about orders that he had gotten from Castellano and identifying Castellano as the boss of the family. Also, talking to other bosses of other families, talking about other bosses, discussing all kinds of crimes, like everything that could be accumulated on this wiretap was, and they built the Mafia Commission trials off of them. Now, Castellano knows where these charges came from, and he is pissed. He's mad. He's out for blood, but at the same time, he does know that Gotti is a really good leader. So 
when he gets arrested and goes to jail, he leaves him in place as one of the acting co-bosses of the family. He puts Gotti in place with Thomas Bellotti and Thomas Gambino as the leaders of the family. On February 25th, 1985, Paul Castellano was arrested as the boss of the Gambino family. Along with him, Aniello Della Croce was arrested as the underboss of the Gambino family. From the other families, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno was arrested as the boss of the Genovese family. Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo was arrested as the boss of the Lucchese family. Philip Rusty Rastali was arrested as the boss of the Bonanno family. Gennaro Jerryland Langella was arrested as the acting boss and official underboss of the Colombo family. Salvatore Tom Mix Santoro was arrested as the underboss and Christopher Chrissy Tick Fernari were arrested as the consigliere, both of the Lucchese family. And Ralph Little Ralphie Scopo was arrested as a soldier in the Colombo family. Now, this is the biggest arrest in mafia history. They were arrested for crimes ranging from narcotics trafficking to loan sharking, gambling, right, labor racketeering, extortion against construction companies, just exactly what you would expect to see in a mafia arrest you're seeing in all of these arrests. Later on, Carmine Jr. Persico was arrested as the boss of the Colombo family. Stefano Canone was arrested as the Bonanno consigliere and Anthony Bruno and Delicato was arrested as a Bonanno family capo. All three of these guys were added to the historic commission trials. Philip Rusty Rastali ended up being able to have his case removed from the mafia commission trial because all of the witnesses that they spoke with corroborated that the Bonanos had lost their seat at the commission in the early 80s after the Donnie Brasco, Joe Pistone scandal almost took the entire mafia down. The Bonanos being kicked out of the commission actually worked in their favor, and it allowed them to plead that they had much less knowledge or even less part in the crimes that were committed by the rest of the leaders and the rest of the mafia, and they were able to remove themselves from the mafia commission trials, which would help the Bonanno leaders get a lot easier of a time at trial. So everybody that had been arrested in the Mafia Commission trials, pretty much the whole Mafia is scrambling. This is the biggest hit that has ever come their way. And New York is reeling. Every single one of the powerhouses of the families are in a fight for their life. So obviously people are moving much differently than they typically would. Paul Castellano becomes pretty much a shut-in at his house in Todd Hill. He is rarely seen outside, and it's even more rare to see him with anybody that is known to be associated with the Mafia or in any of the families. As a boss of the Gambino family, he is expected to have regular contact with people in the family, but that all comes to an end after these arrests. He starts to shun the spotlight, and he starts avoiding all of the members of the family who are handing him envelopes that are paying for his lawyers and his mortgage. 
when he's arrested, his lawyers have access to all the information being used against him at trial. One of the main charges against Paul Castellano is the murder of Roy DeMeo and charges surrounding the car theft ring that DeMeo was running while he was alive. On Angelo's wiretap, he and Gene can be heard talking about how Castellano had given Gotti the order to kill him, but how Gotti was really scared to carry it out, so he turned it down. They're heard talking about how DeMeo had an army of killers around him. Ruggiero said that Gotti had less than 10 kills under his belt at this time, and DeMeo had 37 that could be confirmed by him. But, like, who knows how many had actually been carried out at that time. 37 is, like, a joke of a number. They said that DeMeo's number was, like, above 150. It was, it was high. So now, Paul is being charged with all these charges. He's going crazy trying to get his hands on these tapes from Ruggiero, and he lets everybody know that he fully plans to take Ruggiero out and take apart the entire Gotti crew when the Mafia Commission trial ends. So he pretty much puts the word out, like, I, I'm busy with this commission trial right now, but as soon as I'm done with this, the entire Gotti crew is done. They're getting separated. They're they're fully taken apart. And Ruggiero, he's dead. Dead man. Now, Gotti is having none of this. Ruggiero was his best friend, his boyhood friend, and he didn't ever plan on letting anything happen to him. Castellano is sitting on his high horse, residing over the rest of the world, making demands, all while he has never gotten his hands dirty. Like, no, I don't think so. That's not going to happen. According to Gravano, Gotti had Ruggiero reach out to him, Sammy the Bull Gravano, and ask him for his help in taking out Castellano. Frank DeChico, Sammy the Bull's best friend, was also invited to take part in the hit. The group got together and agreed that they would do it, but they went to Aniello Della Croce and asked if it would be okay if they pulled this off. At the end of the day, the whole group really loved and respected Della Croce, and they obeyed him no matter what. Della Croce put the kibosh on it immediately. He was having none of it. Remember, Della Croce is an OG Mafia Don. He respected the rules of the Mafia. The number one rule of the Mafia is you never go after a boss. And Della Croce was not about to get on board with a plan to do so. He pretty much says, like, over my dead body, I will not allow you to do that. And if you try to do it, I will take each and every one of you out. Sammy the Bull, Gotti, and DeChico, they all respected Della Croce so much that they took his no and they obeyed it. This right here is where we get into situation number three. Aniello Della Croce died of cancer later that year on December 2nd, 1985 at Mary Immaculate Hospital in Queens, New York. Now, when he died, it really fucked with Gotti and his entire crew. Gotti was Della Croce's protege. He loved that man with every single piece of him. Like, he was fully devoted to Della Croce, and it really messed him up when he died. Gotti was already heated at Castellano. Castellano is not a gangster. He's sitting here ruling over a bunch of gangsters, telling them what they can and can't do. He's threatening Gotti's best friend. He's threatening to take his crew apart, and he is just... He hates him. He hates him with everything he has. Another thing that really pissed off Gotti 
Sammy the Bull and a lot of the Gambino members was that when Castellano became a recluse in his house, everybody had to go to him. They would have to go to the White House to see him. When the Gotti crew, Sammy the Bull, and all the Gambino members would go to the house, they found out that Castellano had been having an affair on his wife. Like, yeah, that's typical mafia behavior. You know, you have, like, the wife on Friday night and the gumar on Saturday night. That's very public information. Every mafia guy does it. But where Castellano messed up was he was having an affair with his live-in maid. Gloria Alarte was hired as his live-in maid, and the pair began an affair right in front of Castellano's wife's face. Castellano is supposed to be the father of the family. He is supposed to set an example, but he is outright disrespecting the shit out of his wife with a mistress living in the house that she lives in. Paul even went as far as to get a penile implant because he was having some ED due to his diabetes. He told a few people about that and word got around and it just looked like the least manly thing that anybody had ever done before in the history of ever. And everybody just lost a lot of respect for him. Situation number three arises and... The last straw for all of these men arises when Castellano does not attend the funeral of Aniello Della Croce. Nobody had made a move on Castellano all this time, even though they all wanted to, even though they had a plan, they, they were dying to do it. They hadn't made a move on him because Della Croce was so by the books and refused to be okay with somebody taking out a boss. And he was also super loyal to Castellano. And nobody knew why. When Della Croce died, the entirety of the mafia came for the funeral. The entirety, that is, except Paul Castellano. Castellano had the mafia commission trials going on, and he was too scared to be seen in a place that it was public knowledge that this was a mafia gathering. When he didn't attend... That was it. Gotti and Sammy the Bull are both like, yo, Della Croce is the sole reason this scumbag is still alive. And you don't even have the decency to show up at his funeral. I bet. Let's let's see. Let's see how far that gets you. You don't have Della Croce to protect you anymore. You don't have Roy DeMeo to protect you anymore. Really? At the end of the day, Castellano, who do you have? Nobody. At that point they started to put the hit together. According to Sammy the Bulgarano, about six to eight months of planning went into this hit. And I think when he says that, he means the time between when they brought it to Della Croce and Della Croce said no, and the time that they actually carried the hit out. So that really is a span of, you know, in February, the Mafia Commission trials were brought about this all goes down in December, so all of that time is the time that he's talking about. Now, when I say that these three situations are what led to the toppling of this leadership, it's because you got Roy DeMeo, who was the number one person that would carry out hits for Castellano, but the number one person that would protect him. So by Castellano taking out DeMeo, he really took out the only obstacle that stood in place for somebody to take out Castellano. Everybody would be too scared to take out Castellano because they know that Roy DeMeo would absolutely kill them for it. But now DeMeo's gone. 
You got situation number two, where you got John Gotti, and he is protecting his best friend. There is all of these drug charges and blah, blah, blah going on. But at the end of the day, Gotti is going to do everything he can to keep his crew together and keep his best friend alive. And then you got situation number three, where the entire mafia's outlook on this one man changes. Because Della Croce was such a beloved member of the mafia that when the boss of his family didn't attend his funeral, it really made the entire mafia's vision of him shift. So those three situations really is what led to the toppling of Paul Castellano. The crew found out that Paul was going to be having a meeting at Spark Steakhouse soon during Christmas season in New York City. Which, if you've ever been to New York City in Christmas season, it is an absolute madhouse during Christmas season. It's crazy. There's so many people. You can barely walk down the sidewalk. He is set to meet at 5 to 5.30, somewhere in that time range, with Jimmy Brown, Johnny Gamarano, Danny Marino, Tommy Gambino, and Frankie DeChico to talk about matters within the family. On December 16th, 1985, Paul sat in the backseat of a car that was being driven through Manhattan. Thomas Bellotti, his underboss and driver, drove up to the meeting that was scheduled at Spark Steakhouse on East 46th Street near 3rd Avenue. When the two men stepped out of the car, the hitman ran up dressed in Russian fur hats and shot both Paul Castellano and Thomas Bellotti to death on the street in front of Spark Steakhouse. The hit team was already in place. Salvatore Scala, Edward Lino, and John Carneglia were pre-positioned near the entrance of the restaurant. Down the street, Dominic Pizzonia, Angelo Ruggiero, and Tony Rampino waited as backup shooters. At another location across the street, Gotti sat in the car with Sammy the Bulgarvano, and they had a radio that they were calling the shots to the rest of the crew with. Frankie DeChico was positioned inside the restaurant because he was one of the people that were going to be attending the meeting. So he's inside the restaurant with the men that Castellano was set up to meet with. And his role was to make sure that none of the guys inside got up to interfere with the hit. After the shots rang out, Sammy and Gotti's car pulled up to the scene. They visually verified that Paul Castellano and Thomas Bellotti were dead, and within minutes of driving away from the scene, I'm talking like three to four minutes later, they're hearing the news on the radio. The news knew who did it. The family knew who did it. Everybody knew who carried out this hit. After they successfully pulled off the hit, John Gotti was officially instated as the new boss of the Gambino family. Gotti named Frank DeChico as his underboss, who was Sammy the Bull's main man. They planned to run the family behind Gotti, and things just jumped the hell off from there. If you're interested in hearing what happened after the Castellano hit, go check out the video that I did for John Gotti. I've already gone through it all, so I'm not going to go into it here. I needed to go through the other situations just to kind of tell you why this hit happened and why it was allowed to happen. Two of Paul Castellano's sons, Joseph and Paul Jr., own a chain of rib restaurants called Bobby Rubino's. 
They also own a poultry wholesale company and a pasta concern like their father. They are wildly successful, rich, and very powerful men. They were never known to be involved in mafia affairs, and they not only continued their father's business ventures, but they started and ran their own as well. Castellano was refused a public funeral from the Catholic Archdiocese, which is pretty normal. The Catholic Archdiocese, they pretty often refuse any mafia criminals or criminals in general to have a public funeral. There was a wake and hundreds of people showed up to pay their respects to Castellano. John Gotti was not one of them. So that is all I have for Paul Castellano. This was a bit of a long one and it incorporated a lot of the other episodes I had already done. So I hope that you enjoyed it and didn't get too bored from repeated information. I hope you had a good time hanging out tonight. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye.